Hello friends, welcome to this podcast that doesn't necessarily record a whole lot. Seems like as we uh, reflect back on the last couple of weeks or whenever I last did this, we were discussing Sinclair Ferguson's book, Devoted to God's Church. And if memory serves, we were in chapter 3. Well, since then, we have, in in our Sunday school class, progressed on to chapter 4. And uh, Lord willing, we'll finish chapter 4 this week. But, just, uh, thought I'd back up here in chapter 4 and maybe throw some of my thoughts out there so devoted to God's church chapter 4 have you ever arrived at church I, I struggled with the uh, the title of this chapter it seems kind of uh, weird of course we've arrived at church right well that's not exactly what Dr. Ferguson means. Of course, we've all arrived at church. If you've been to church, you've arrived. Right? But, in his deeper meaning here is, have, have we... Have we truly been there? Right? And the subtitle for this chapter is Worship. It's a big uh, popular topic. Christianity and uh, evangelicalism. There's my shibboleth. I'll try not to say that word too much. But worship is a big, big deal. Worship brings them in, right? That's what, that's what gets people through the door. And in the opening, opening paragraphs of, of this chapter, he relates um, an anecdotal statement he has heard uh, to sum it up, church analysts have told us that while there are weaknesses in our church, our worship is not one of them. In fact, they told us that the quality of our morning worship is outstanding. And then the, the question must be, by what measure are we judging the quality of worship? <clears throat> Do we as- make this assessment based only on the music or the, uh, the eloquence of the preaching? Or do we assess the quality, or can we even assess the quality of the worship based on the hearts of those who are indeed worshiping God? Dr. Ferguson goes on to say that the only expert assessor of our quality of worship is the Lord himself, before whom every heart is open. The Lord himself, who is a consuming fire, If there is a way of assessing the quality of our worship, therefore it is the degree to which we bring it with reverence and awe, as the author of the book of Hebrews tells us. Otherwise, it may be that the object of our worship is no longer the Lord, but our own worship of Him. For true worshipers are not conscious 
of worship so much as they are of God and his presence. So what is worship? Worship is, as defined by Webster, reverence offered to a divine being or the act of expressing such reverence. Good worship, to borrow from Dr. Ferguson's word earlier, words earlier in this chapter, good worship should point us away from ourselves and to Christ. The PCA's Book of Church Order, 47.2, says a service of public worship is not merely a gathering of God's children with each other, but before all else, a meeting of the triune God with his chosen people. God is present in public worship, not only by virtue of the divine omnipresence, but much more intimately as the faithful covenant Savior. Uh, my pastor often puts uh, a little statement in our bulletin that says the, uh, that the flow of today's worship is a small-scale model of the relationship between the Lord's redeemed people and himself. As we walk with him, there is learning, then response. There is listening, then talking. <coughs> the design for worship of the Lord the design is for worship of the Lord together here and worship of the Lord in our day-to-day -day living through the week. <coughs> and then Westminster, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 20, speaks of worship and tells us that the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited to his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the, or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. It is at this point we, we could and should consider or ask the question, does God care how we worship? Does anything go? Um, two schools of thought here. We have the normative principle of worship. Anything not expressly forbidden by God in his word is acceptable. And we have the regulative principle of worship that says, or which holds, that God sets forth his explicit forms for his people, how in they may worship him and how in they should worship him. I think a uh, pretty good way to uh, consider or think about or reinforce the regulative principle is taken from Leviticus chapter 10 I will not read everything here verses 1 through 4 tell us about Nadab and Abihu the sons of Aaron who took you know what I will read it now Nadab and Abihu this is Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 through 4 now Nadab and Abihu the sons of Aaron took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, 
It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So therefore Aaron kept so Aaron therefore kept silent. These are convicting words. I've heard several theories about what this strange fire was. Uh, one I only recently heard, this came from uh, J. Vernon McGee, was that Nadab and Abihu uh, took, took in a little too much wine and were drunk and came before the Lord in the uh, tabernacle under the influence, as, you, as it were, Priesting while intoxicated, PWI. And their drunkenness is what caused the Lord to kill them with fire. I've heard that uh, perhaps it was they found some, some form of solidified petroleum. Or some uh, hydrocarbon that maybe con- contained some explosive gas, and when they lit that as incense, it exploded and killed them, which tends to take the supernatural out of the uh, equation and denies that. God was the one who was offended by this action. But if we look at the text, Nadab and Abihu took their fire pans and they put fire in them and they placed incense on it and offered strange fire. It's not what they burned, perhaps, but it's that the Lord had not commanded them to do so. Now, we, don't, we have no way of knowing what they put in their fire pans, and we have no way of knowing if they were indeed drunk or under the influence. <clears throat> the most important aspect of this text is that the God that Lord that the that God had not commanded them to do so. And that is why the fire came from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. They did not treat God as holy, and they did not honor God, for they did not follow his word. Back to the book. For the most part in this chapter, Dr. Ferguson utilizes the account <clears throat> that Isaiah gives us in uh, the sixth chapter of his book. If we consider what we read in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah was in the temple on the Lord's day or the Sabbath. Kind of confusing some scriptures there, but Isaiah's in the temple. And he beholds the glory of God, whose train of whose robe filled the entire room. Isaiah experienced firsthand the glory 
and the holiness of God. And, and it is at this juncture here dealing with experience that I somewhat diverge with uh, some of Dr. Ferguson's thoughts. He relates uh, something of a hypothetical story of conversation between Isaiah after this experience and, and his friend whom he calls Benjamin. And Isaiah relates these experiences to Benjamin. And as he puts it here, Isaiah tells Benjamin, I feel I have been to the temple worship today for the very first time in my life. I saw it. <clears throat> Real worship. I heard worship. I tasted worship. I can't explain it. But feel I can never be the same again. Worship can never be the same again. And I long to sense the presence of God like that again and again. It sounds to me uh, uneducated lout that I am. That sounds to me a lot like revivalism and chasing these experiences. Uh, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 34 to taste and see that the Lord is good indeed. But are we to chase these mountaintop experiences? Dr. R. Scott Clark, in his excellent book, Recovering the Reformed Confession, tells us of a, um, an idea, a theory, a descriptor we can use for people like this. And that would be uh, the choir, the Q-I-R-E, the quest for illegitimate religious experience. Not inferring or not implying, however, that Isaiah's experience was illegitimate. But as <clears throat> Dr. Ferguson puts it here, he, Isaiah is, is questing and, and thirsting after this experience over and over again. I don't know that that's, that's necessarily a good, um, a good way to put things. But yes, uh, who among us would not be, as Isaiah says there in chapter 6, who among us would not be undone if we were indeed the recipient of such a, an experience, such a sight? So when it comes to worship, are we are should we chase these emotions and experience? Should we leave church on Sunday morning, Sunday evening if you are so blessed on a worship high? Or when we come before a holy God, are we undone? When we are confronted with our sins through the ministering of God's Word, are we undone? Do we fully grasp what takes place in a worship service. As Hebrews chapter 12. We have received. As Hebrews chapter 12 says. We have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude. By which we may offer to God. An acceptable service. Acceptable service. With reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire which as, as you read that, consider what happened to Nadab and Abihu as referenced in Leviticus chapter 10. So what does it mean, this, 
this worship of God. Dr. Ferguson references, or he has five points. One would almost think he's a Baptist preacher. But five points that he uh, utilizes to reinforce this concept of worship. Five things that we should consider. And these five things are the glory of God, the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, sensing sin, tasting pardon, and the sermon. So as we come to worship, let us consider the glory of God. And again, returning to Isaiah chapter 6 here. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. When such a thing comes into our vision or into our sight, are we overwhelmed or are we underwhelmed? Or are we just whelmed? We, uh, we defined that in Sunday school class uh, the day we discussed this, this, this topic. And overwhelmed or underwhelmed or whelmed even, whelmed is indeed a word, um, speaks of being um, submerged. So if we were overwhelmed, then we are uh, underwater, as it were, or being underwhelmed is not being underwater. So perhaps whelmed could be defined as... Uh, keeping your head above water. We should feel a sense of God, God's presence when we come to worship. And not just um, coming for the sake of coming. Think about that call to worship. Those first words we should hear. As the worship service begins. That call to worship comes from God, not from man. We, uh, we tend to think that during a worship service, the preaching of the word, that's just some guy standing up there uh, reading and, and speaking, right? Or do we consider that it is indeed God speaking to us through this man whom he has called and set apart for the ministering of his word, ministering of the sacraments, the shepherding of a specific flock? It's a good thing to think about and consider. And in the context of, say, the call to worship, so many people think that uh, a, lit a set liturgy or a set order of the service is boring and uh, uninspired. We must let go and let God, right? Again, 
this treads on uh, raw emotionalism. Thanks a lot, uh, Whitfield, all you revivalists. There's something to be said and something to be appreciated about simple, ordinary worship. But Dr. Ferguson's second point, or second item that we should consider as we enter into worship, is the sovereignty of God. Isaiah says, holy, 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 or actually the cherubim, Say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah tells us that the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. God was sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. So when we hear this call to worship, we are being invited to meet with this sovereign, triune, holy God. It is at this point that Dr. Ferguson details the uh, story of King Uzziah. From Second Chronicles chapter 26, Uzziah essentially got too big for his britches and decided that he would burn incense on the altar of incense before the Lord. Sounds like strange fire, doesn't it? But God struck him with leprosy and he spent the rest of his days outside the uh, outside his house Dr. Ferguson says that worship uh, does and should have a recalibrating effect on our lives None of us see clearly. We constantly misinterpret reality. We live in a world where the price tags on the items have all been mixed up. No matter who we are or what is happening in our lives, God reigns. Meeting with Him weekly recenters us on the One who is on the throne at the center of heaven and the center of the universe. This body, this congregation that, that, that we are a part of, this local, local or even universal, it is not a democracy. It is God's church. He tells us what to do. He tells us how to do it. But Uzziah, Nadab, and Abihu, they did it their way. They, they practiced the uh, Frank Sinatra doctrine of worship, didn't they? They did it their way. We cannot, we should not do things our way. This is not a game, my friends. This is serious. We are coming into the presence of a truly holy God. We cannot comprehend Him. We cannot understand Him. He is transcendent. His ways are not our ways, His thoughts are not our thoughts. 
No man can see God, as, as Moses tells us in Exodus 33. We require an intercessor, a go-between, someone to stand before this holy God that will not be undone. Read all of Exodus 33 and see how Moses interceded for his people. A type of Christ there interceding, going between God and the people of God. A wonderful thing to consider and meditate upon that we do indeed have someone to go before a holy God on our behalf and we need not and we simply cannot presume to go before God But as the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Friends, we come boldly there because we do have that perfect intercessor. Moses was not perfect. Moses pointed to the one that would be perfect. The holiness of God requires that perfect intercessor, something that we cannot do, we cannot presume, we cannot hope to approach God and be anything but undone. It's a popular song, a Christian song by Mercy Me called I Can Only Imagine. They even made a movie about it. And the, uh, the, the life of the man who wrote it. Um, it's not a horrible movie. But the underlying premise of that song uh, quoting from memory here unfortunately I do have it uh, I'm not going to say that I've listened to the song a few times feel free to turn this off and never listen again at that point but I can only imagine uh, surrounded by his glory what will my eyes see? I think is how it goes. He asked the question, Will I dance before you, Jesus? And I think when I hear that song, I think right there, did Isaiah dance before him? Did <clears throat> Daniel dance before him? Did Abraham dance before the pre-incarnate Christ there at the Oaks of Mamre. Did Moses dance before God there on the mount? Did Jacob dance before him there as he wrestled with the angel of the Lord? No. But in defense of in, in the defense of the, uh, the gentleman there from wrote the song, he asks or posits that perhaps at his knees he will fall, or in all of uh, in all of him be still. Yes, my friends, that is the expression. That is what you will do. Yes, we will praise him. 
that we will not be able to glory before him. We have no standing to glory before a holy God. For while he is holy, we are not. While he is righteous, he is just, he is loving, he is holy, we are not. We are not righteous. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Think about the seraphim there in the vision of Isaiah. They could not behold the Holy God without covering their face. They had the three, three sets of wings covering their feet, covering their face, and the other set they flew. They were created holy, but they were dependent upon God for their being. So if these angels, these created beings cannot look upon God, why would we think that we can? We are not independent of our Creator. We are not self-sufficient. We are indeed not autonomous. As Paul tells us in Acts chapter 17, we live and move and have our being in our created Creator in the most holy God. So as we hear the word of God, as we come to worship, as these words are spoken over us by the minister of of God, we should sense our sin Woe, 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 we are an unclean people. But we should also, and we do also, taste pardon. Brings me back to our order of worship, our liturgy. Do, do we have that the corporate confession of sin each each week? And then do we experience that assurance of pardon? As far as I'm concerned, we cannot have too much scripture in our worship services we cannot consider too much exactly what has taken place we should be torn down by the words of God when we confess our sins but then we are pardoned We are assured of this pardon. And it is through that pardon that we were rebuilt by his mighty hands. I had a note here on my, it's been a couple weeks since I've been through this section of the book. But I had a note here on one of my slides, Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. He who has found his life. We'll lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Can't recall the exact exact context I <clears throat> thought of there. Here we go. Again, back to the the body of the book here, point four, Matthew 10.39. In the context of being undone by God, we dread losing control of our lives. We dread 
consciously ceding authority, acknowledging that we are not indeed in control. We want to have our lives together. And to use Dr. Ferguson's Ferguson's words here, we can only get it together in an artificial way by the employment of this world's various brands of superglue. He must have been using some superglue when he wrote this book. I think that's the second or third time he has referenced glue so far in the first 70 pages of the book. But consider this slow process, perhaps sometimes, of of being torn down and rebuilt. Jacob, Joseph, Isaiah, Dr. Ferguson makes a very good point. <clears throat> Worship in the presence of God has the power to undeceive us. What does he mean by that? We are quick to admit our weaknesses. We are Even Paul talks about how God is glorified, how his strength is made apparent in our weakness. But we deceive ourselves because we think that, and again, these are Dr. Ferguson's words, we think that in our weaknesses we're Our sin lurks most influentially. But it is in this account of Isaiah and Uzziah that we see how sin weaves itself so insidiously into our strengths and our abilities and and into the very gifts of nature. Dr. Ferguson calls this a terrible secret and a sobering and shattering truth. Now Isaiah is discovering that he can only be reconstructed to be fit to speak for God when he has learned that the very instrument God will use, must confess its own sin and be cleansed. Think about what you would consider to be your strengths. Be it your ability to speak eloquently or your strength in your muscles. We tend to take pride in those things, do we not? Whether it's your brain, your ability to learn, your ability to read. We, we take pride in those things. And this pride leads us to believe that we can utilize these, these gifts, these things for ourselves. And that maybe we can somehow save ourselves. Friends, we do not stop and consider that even our best deeds and works are tainted by sin. and this sin should cause us woe but as we draw near to God in a worship service we hear his words over us we should and we do see just how sinful we are, how unworthy we are, this confession of sin that we corporately practice points us to Christ. If we are far away from God, 
If we do not have his word constantly in our hearts and on our tongues, oh, I'm not that bad, am I? No, no. Yeah, I, I do. You know, I tell a lie here or there. And, and yeah, I, I maybe look at that lady or that, that man a little too long. And maybe I spend a little time, too much time uh, staring at my phone and looking at Facebook or Twitter. But I'm not that bad. I'm basically a good person, right? But as we draw closer to God, we become as Isaiah. I am a man of unclean lips among an unclean people. My throat is an open grave. It is through, friends, friends it is through this drawing to God in worship and worshiping this, this holy God and hearing his word preached to us weekly monthly, yearly. Dr. Ferguson calls this a, an ever-repeating cycle of discovering fresh layers of sin to be dealt with and fresh supplies of forgiveness and cleansing. He details some woes in Isaiah chapter 5. And I will not read through them at this moment, but uh, take, a, take a moment to read through Isaiah chapter 5. And then contrast that with the Sermon on the Mount. Just uh, one, one here, Isaiah chapter 5, uh, verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. And then consider the Beatitudes. Blessed is he. Blessed, blessed, blessed. So woe, but then blessed. So each week as we come to worship, we see how deeply dyed our hearts are with sin. But we should take solace in the pardon and cleansing available through the blood of Christ. First John, the apostle tells us that uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And Dr. Ferguson at this point says, there is a law of the spiritual universe illustrated graphically as we, we see Isaiah being cleansed and it is this this illustration is it is only when we confess our sin that we experience forgiveness if we do not confess our sins if we do not believe ourselves to be sinners then why do we need forgiveness right There must be an atonement. There must be a covering for sin. This realization of our sinfulness must point us, point us to Jesus. Dr. Ferguson references the words of Augustus Toplady and his hymn, Rock of Ages. 
naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. This is what worship should do. It must show us our sin. It must point us to Christ for cleansing. Christ must be that burning coal on our lips. And through Christ's blood, we must have assurance of this pardon. But how? This brings us to Dr. Ferguson's final point. This is the sermon. God speaks to us through the preaching of his word. We tell people to come as they are, right? But we do not want them to leave as they were. This preaching of the word, does it warm your heart? Or does it harden your heart? I cannot help but think of the account from Luke's account from the Emmaus Road. How Christ comes to these people as they leave Jerusalem. And they do not know who he is, this ascended this not yet ascended, resurrected Christ. But as he walks with them, he tells them from Moses and the prophets all these things that detail and tell us about him. And as they come to their destination and, and ask Christ to join them for a meal, he breaks the bread and blesses it, and then their eyes are opened, and he disappears. But they say, were not our hearts warmed in us as he spoke to us along, along the way? Friends, does the preaching of the word have that effect on you? Or do you hear it and deny it? Or... you hear it and walk away think about think about planting a seed and then uh, seed is planted in the dirt put some water on it you keep looking at it and looking at it and nothing happens but then all of a sudden up from the ground, a seedling sprouts. I think about my own life in that context and how growing up, I don't know that I saw myself as a, a sinner. I, I never would say that I did not believe. But it is not until that point when, after uh, 15 years or so of uh, hearing the word preached, did that seed sprout. At least that's the way I think of things in a revivalist context. Yes, indeed, we do come 
to worship as we are, but we should never leave as we were. His presence touches us. His word comes to us, teaches, convicts, transforms, and equips us. And we should leave humbled, pardoned, and renewed. Conversely, we often leave with our hearts and minds a little more hardened. Do we leave with a burning in our hearts? Or do we leave <clears throat> with sore toes? Can't believe that preacher would say that. He doesn't know what it's like. kind of reminded of that scene in uh, Oh Brother Where Out Thou after, uh, after Delmer I think his name was Delmer the hogwalla turns him uh, turns uh, the three escaped convicts in got to do for him and his right? I don't know how Germain, that little thought that popped into my head is, but that's how we think, right? We have to do for for, for hours. God doesn't know. This, this preacher doesn't know uh, all the things we have to deal with. My friend, God does know. But do we expect to uh, live a trouble-free life? Do we expect to not have trials? troubles do we listen to the prosperity preachers who tell us that God wants us to live our best life now or are we looking forward to that city as Abraham did whose foundations are laid by our heavenly father Worship before God should undo us. These sermons, this word, these hymns, should cause us to Be undone before God. But at the same time, as we read and we hear these words of God preached to us, we should be assured that if we are indeed, if we have indeed placed our faith in Jesus Christ, if we confess him as our Lord and our Savior, if we claim the blood as it is said, then we can be assured of pardon. No, we will not be perfect in this life. We will daily struggle with sin. But if we are not struggling with it, are we near or far away from Him? If we are not daily convicted by the things we do and the thoughts we have, how close to Him are we? If these people we see on TV and stand before us and say that uh, God wants you to be happy. And if we are not happy, then there's something wrong with us. Something wrong with God. God is not faithful. 
Do we think God is not faithful based on what we read in the Word or because of these ideas that are implanted into our heads by society? God is faithful, my friend. Morning by morning, new mercies we see. With the changing of the seasons, we should rest assured and rest on God's promise given to Noah. Don't really know where I was, uh, what the point of everything I just said was. Uh, think about these things as you arrive at church. God bless, my friends. <laughs>